0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, we talked to Richard Osejo, a sociologist and author of the new book, Masters of Craft, which is about the way that certain manual jobs that traditionally would have been considered middle-brow, middle-skill, middle-income jobs are being upscaled and transformed by educated urbanites. It's also about the societal changes that are driving this trend and what it might signal about the future of the modern workforce and the modern economy. The four occupations that Richard spent the last few years studying are bartending, barbering, butchery, and craft distilling. And it's worth noting that Richard spent some time working in each of these industries as part of his sociological fieldwork. Here it is. Here's where I want to start with a conversation I had with a friend of mine more than a decade ago, just after I had moved to New York. We were talking about all of our other friends who lived in the city, and we noticed that none of them had jobs that involved working with their hands or making anything that's materially tangible. So obviously, there were people in law and finance because New York is known for that. But even our other friends were in advertising, Mm -hmm. graphic design, Some were publicists, jobs like that, and it seems like this book is very much about grappling with a specific effect of a post-industrial urban economy, right? That's right, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I mean, those jobs that you just mentioned, that's what we think about, I think, when we talk about the new economy, when we talk about the urban economy, successful New York City's rebirth threat, its revitalization and so on. And what I wanted to get across in the book is that there are these alternatives to that, that we're seeing – these really traditional manual labor jobs where people do work with their hands or interact very directly with other people, provide very uh, intimate services for for people, that these jobs are being in many ways, incorporated into this new economy, that these uh, old jobs are being recycled in many ways into something that is kind of new and refreshing and, and hip and cool, uh, where people can both use their hands to make things that are, that are material and to provide services and products for people that are unique, uh, while at the same time using their, their minds and using their, their ideas and their creativity to provide these services and to make these goods.
0: Yeah, it seems like the upscaling of these jobs that traditionally would have conferred lower status, uh, certainly lower incomes, has been the product of a number of things. But when I had this conversation with my friend about how we didn't know anybody who worked with their hands, it was in the spirit of lament. It seems like Hmm. this is a fairly recent trend, this upscaling trend of these jobs, right? Yeah, And it's not that the skills you needed to be in advertising and design and, you know, finance law or whatever are unnecessary for these new jobs. Actually, you need them. You just also need to be able to work with your hands and to have some sense of what it is to make something.
1: That's right. Yeah, you need the technical skills to to do them, obviously. But I think more important is that you need the, the knowledge. You need the the cultural reference points and it's it 's not necessarily different people who are doing these jobs. They very easily could have gone in the direction of something like finance or publishing or graphic design or just something involving the digital world in in some respects. Some of them did and decided they were going to branch away from that and go in a totally different direction in their lives. it wasn 't something that was fulfilling or meaningful for them we 're not dealing with very distinct populations here it's it 's really the generation of people who have come to cities like New York because of their cultural attractions, because of their amenities. And you said this was like about a decade ago you were you were talking about this. And it was really around then that we started to see this real explosion start to happen of these revised jobs that I studied.
0: I want to quote something that you said uh, or that you wrote uh, in the beginning of the book and then ask you to comment on it a little bit. Uh, here's the quote New consumption and lifestyle patterns have disrupted the imagination. Specifically, society's elites have been consuming low and middle-brow culture, which they may have once shunned in addition to or in place of traditionally upscale offerings without compromising their status as elites, Mm. unquote. And then the example uh, you give right away is that people now are as likely to be fluent in hip hop and beer as they are uh, classical music and wine.
1: Yeah, and this is a, a really popular concept now in the, the sociology of culture literature called uh, this idea of cultural omnivorousness. So we've, we've shifted from being just a, you could say a, a monovore, I guess, or univore, right, where you just kind of consume cultural goods and products that are within your strata right within your particular class strata so the wealthy are interested in wines and, and fine art and certain types of cuisine like french cuisine and so on the middle class you know the notch down lower class etc whereas today it's way more opened up more democratized as a lot of people like to to put it culture is a lot more accessible to people and people who are from certain backgrounds are very comfortable and are very curious about exploring outside of their their origins their their class origins their class backgrounds so and they're not necessarily taking for granted the traditionally elite products and ideas and places that society has normally held so you know why is a filet mignon good? it's good because it's said that it's good right because you brought up saying oh a fine filet mignon with you know a fine burgundy is what you're supposed to have when you're going out to a nice restaurant that's what a nice dining experience is supposed to be not so right The, the whole foodie revolution and so on has called that into question so it's different ideas behind what makes something quality what makes something really really good and in many cases these are products that were at one point shunned. So something like hip-hop, right, for music or even like at one point rock for, for music or country music or something like beer when it came to, to alcohol consumption or something like bourbon or rye when it came to alcohol consumption or, again, you know, something like uh, a shoulder cut of steak, uh, which is going to be a little bit tougher from a filet mignon, right? These things have become much more elevated now to, to a position of
0: status, This trend, you say, uh, has been uh, the product of three specific societal changes. You just talked about the first, which is the reconfigured understandings of taste, cultural omnivorousness. The second is the new role of community institutions in gentrifying neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, and this is uh, something that builds from what the research I did in my first book, uh, which was about downtown Manhattan, specifically the neighborhoods of the East Village and the Lower East Side, that were really expanding their entertainment districts, their nightlife scenes, their restaurant scenes, and they were becoming destinations for consumers from all around the city from all around the world. It became a place where, if you were a tourist coming to New York, you wanted to go down there just to go out right just to just to consume. but you really see it related to these jobs and these businesses they 've all opened up in neighborhoods that are undergoing advanced gentrification processes with new investment, new residents moving in, mostly young residents who are usually members of this new economy that we were talking about before, workers in this new economy. And you know, these are people who have discerning tastes. They have disposable income. They're in search of unique, in many cases, unique products and services. But they're also in search of a certain sense of community, a certain sense of an urban lifestyle. I kind of refer to it as a revival of this idea of the urban village, right? The urban village is an idea that came up in the mid-20th century to describe white ethnic neighborhoods primarily, like the Little Italys and uh, Greek towns and places like that, that kind of seem idyllic now, right? Mm-hmm. They they had, like, the butcher, the baker, the, the greengrocer, the fishmonger, the cheesemonger. All you had to do was walk down the street and get these services and just fulfill all of your daily needs just by by doing that I think we look back on that time romantically it was it was something ideal about it there was something that was authentic about it right and something about that urban lifestyle and I think a lot of people who are moving to New York City and living in a lot of these neighborhoods are looking for that uh, general urban lifestyle of, of shopping locally of having that that community feel to to where they live and I think these businesses that I looked at are, New versions of this, these community institutions like the local bar where everyone knows your name, and the the local barbershop shop that you go to, or the butcher shop where they, they know exactly how your family you know ask you about your family or something like that. They they uh, know what your favorite order is going to be, you know. But in in practice, they're they're far less community oriented than they try to be. They're far more about the the consumption itself. They're far more about the individualized consumption. So the consumer going into the cocktail bar doesn't know the person sitting next to them. They don't know the people who are necessarily who are coming in. They may know the bartender and if they do know the bartender, they're not talking about their family or about how the, their favorite sports team did last night, right. which is what we think about when we think about the local neighborhood bar. They're talking about the cocktail, right? So these these products and that interaction, the consumption experience really frames and structures what the relationships and the interactions are within these businesses and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they are in these neighborhoods that are destinations they're places that people know to go to get a really really well-made version of a very mundane down-to-earth product that's become somehow valuable today highly valued today
0: like a cocktail or a cut of meat yeah a little bit later we're going to talk about the kind of complex interactions between worker and client, Mm -hmm. worker and worker, and client and client. But to stay on this theme about how these workplaces now, in a sense, trade on the aesthetic of these old romantic urban neighborhoods and institutions without quite replicating all of the same things that applied to those. So it's not Mm -hmm. for the sense of community. As you just said, that people go there, it's for the consumption. And yet these places successfully trade in the aesthetic of those older neighborhoods in the kind of legacy of and the hipness of Mm -hmm. like an era gone by. And it seems to work as a performative thing, right? Rather than uh, as a place that actually does satisfy the need for community or a wish for community, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: exactly. They become, I use this term to describe the the cocktail bars but you, it's kind of apt for the other ones but they they become like cathedrals in a way right They they become these like places where you worship the the product that is being sold not the community not the interaction not the relationships necessarily it becomes much more about fetishizing really what this product is all about so for the cocktail bars it's Usually they've 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 really traded in the idea of the speakeasy and the hidden door or the just inconspicuous facade. They've toned that down a little bit over the years as cocktail culture has really spread and become almost a really normal thing. The barbershops really trade in that really classic vintage. Uh, barbershop look they look like hunting lodges or fishing lodges or something like that right so it's like distressed wood and everything and they're really really playing that up and then the butcher shops very clean looking or just just have that like big counter to them you know they're they're just they they really give off that you it's they're familiar you can you you walk in there and you can read it right if you're if you're of a certain background you're like oh wait a second this is what I heard about when I was growing up, this is what my grandpappy used to, you know, say to me about what life used to be like where he yeah. was growing up, right? These are like the, this is the family lore. This is what I've been looking for, right? When I when I wanted to live in a real neighborhood in, in a in a real lively city, right? Yeah. That's what I wanted my daily life to be like.
0: The third uh, societal change is the one that we actually opened with, which was work in the new economy of post-industrial cities like New York. And I would add one more dimension to that, which is uh, a topic that comes up throughout your book quite a bit, which is that in a way, these are still kind of elite-led trends. Mm. And by that, I mean, you know, when my friend and I were lamenting the fact that we didn't have a ton of friends who worked uh, in jobs that made things or in jobs uh, that involved working uh, with your hands, we recognized that we were two people who were lucky enough to go to a nice university and then Mm -hmm. work in the knowledge economy. We knew, of course, that there are many, many jobs out there that do involve working with your hands. Obviously, it's a huge economy, right? In terms of the work that you're studying here, these trends – do involve mainly the educated classes. And because of that, they bring along with them all of the tensions regarding, like, race and gender sure. and socioeconomic backgrounds that a lot of the uh, older, quote-unquote, elite status jobs also brought.
1: That's right, yeah. And you really think about what the ideal path is meant to be for upward mobility. You know, it's go to college, get a, typically an office job of some sort, you know, work in it for 30 to 40 years or so and then retire and live a happy life off of your pension, right? I think this is what I grew up thinking was what you're supposed to do. This is how you move up and out, you know, that sort of idea. And I think a lot of people obviously have internalized that. But obviously today, our economy is far more unstable, far more volatile than it ever was before. There's a lot more risk that individual workers have to take on in their careers, and some, you know, some people love it. And I think they love jumping around from, say, job to job, not why would you want to imprison yourself in the same job for 30 to 40 years or in the same firm for 30 to 40 years? You want to be able to jump around and, and, and be a free agent. That's how you get your, your value. But I think a lot of people who did this path, they, they, they went to went to college, they did internships, they moved to a large city, are unsettled by this reality that they face at the same time, they feel this impulse to be doing something that is important or that is meaningful to them, right? Work should be, I think, the, the millennial generation and even Gen X has has really internalized this idea that work should be more than just something that you do to earn money. And your free time is where you do your real passions and pursuits. Mm-hmm. Work should be something that is meaningful and fulfilling. It should be more like a vocation than just something that you do for material benefits, and when you confront today's economy, I think many people have you know, not found themselves in, in it right? or they don't feel like they're necessarily going to be stable within it in, in any sense.
0: Or at least there's a big disconnect between their expectations for finding meaning in their work and then the reality the of the reality. jobs they actually end up in.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think these older jobs that at least come across as being very stable and very traditional they provide this interesting outlet for them but they're not the like you said like, there's a ton of people who are doing these jobs obviously and the workers i said they don't want to work in the neighborhood barbershop they don't want to work in the the working class bar or anything like that they may have done that at some point in their past say to earn extra money or something like that but that's not what they want to do they went to college they, they understand what status means you know in in a at least in a very implicit sense. They want to be creative. They want to use their minds, right? At the same time they they want to do something that is interesting to them, that is that is important and meaningful to them. And they discover these outlets. They they discover somehow, right? They come across these jobs. You mentioned gender, right? That's a really interesting aspect of this because most of the folks who I studied, and most of the folks who are entering these jobs are men and This is a really interesting opportunity for them to uh, reconnect uh, masculinity with work, right? Mm -hmm. And traditional masculinity, right? Using one's body, right? Using your body to uh, to earn a living and to be like that that breadwinner. We've you know we've been hearing about this for a year and a half now Mm -hmm. about the decline of it was always the decline of manufacturing, but really that's the decline of the the blue collar. You know, uh, male breadwinner, head of the family idea. This has been going on for decades. For some reason, it really became a real big issue within the last year or so. In in a really fascinating way, these these jobs are exactly that. They are a reconnection of this era in in a in a really really specific and very very niche way for a population that doesn't necessarily uh, need it. They, they had options to choose from because they do have their backgrounds. They do have their, their college degrees to fall back on, or they have their professional backgrounds if they had worked in other jobs in other industries before they decided to kind of transition out and become a bartender or something like that.
0: The men you're talking about specifically were not men who risked, as many men pretty much do risk uh, in this day and age, not working at all, or working uh, in a profession uh, that's paying lower wages than it used to in the past, certainly relative to other occupations, mm-hmm. and then might have like their sense of uh, masculinity threatened, These are all people with college educations who could have taken like higher paying jobs and who were working in these places and still end up using them as places to express Mm -hmm. uh, their masculinity in the workplace. I'm sort of uh, ambivalent about how to think about that. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into a little bit more detail on that really interesting topic when we talk about uh, your experience of uh, observing and working in a barbershop. Sure. Um, Before we get to uh, each of these four occupations, I have one final topic to bring up, uh, because I think it applies to all of them. It's this idea of culture as performance and Mm. not just culture as accumulated knowledge. Also a really interesting topic that sort of, I think, you know, is threaded throughout your book. I'm going to quote you again from the book. A new dimension to this shift identifies culture not merely as knowledge to be known or a product to be consumed, but as behavior to be performed, unquote. And then you go on to talk about how The internet makes it so easy to look things up, right? If you want to know everything there is to know about the background of the Mona Lisa, you can find (laughs) it on Wikipedia in five minutes, and that'll be enough to get you by at a dinner party or something, right? right? And so culture ends up being something else where you write, quote, people show their status by acting out their cultural bona fides, but casually with
1: ease. I'm borrowing this uh, idea, this train of thought from – a sociologist named Seamus Khan who studied this among uh, elite boarding school students, right? That was like his his case. And it used to be that you can get away by being an elite by at least you can, if anyone was an aspirant who was trying to come into your space, right, and come into your, your social domain, you could always rely on something like fine details, right? The, the really specific information that... This person clearly cannot know. So if someone comes in and says, like, oh, yeah, well, I love Beethoven. It's like, oh, yeah, well, have you heard uh, Beethoven's uh, concerto as performed by Neville Mariner (laughs) for the London Philharmonic that was recorded in 1978? No? Well, then, I guess you don't know Beethoven. I win. (laughs) I win. I'm still the elite. You're still the rabble down there and we can we can now move on and go back to the way things used to be. Now that gets seen as some kind of forceful showing off or something that is just superficial and and very material. I mean, now it's really subtle performances that people do in their everyday lives, whether it's carrying a uh, one of those bags that folds up into a little pouch right that has uh, some organic food store on it or something like that. They're communicating something there, right? They're they're really performing something in a very very basic everyday way, or they're wearing Tom's shoes, right? Or <laughs> something that signals to other people that I am a part of this consumerist right, kind of kind of cultural trend and shift that's that's going on. You don't shine shine off. You don't make a big speech about it. You just kind of do it, right? You do it naturally. You do it calmly. You do it with ease, and that's exactly what these workers really do they don't flaunt what they do at all they don't do it because it's cool they don't have a sense of of irony or anything like that they just do their jobs they just you know say this is a normal thing that i do now it's it's not i mean it's it's they 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 would if you ever broke it down they would admit that what they're doing is something very very special Uh, but to them they're bartenders they're barbers they're just going about their their time
0: yeah, your book is more about work than it is about consumption, mm-hmm. but this concept reminds me of something I read a long time ago where it had become really tacky to uh, have conspicuous, expensive, unnecessary items, Right, but instead – Elites or rich people, I should just call them, were instead buying very top of the line things for items that are necessary for everybody. So, for instance, it was considered really tacky to have like a super shiny Ferrari in your driveway if you're rich, but it was not considered tacky to have the very best top of the line kitchenware because everybody has a kitchen. You mm-hmm. just happen to have. The very best kitchen yeah, I think
1: conspicuous consumption still you know obviously it still exists in, yeah. in, in many in many ways it's it's shifted its domains right it, it's gone from the you know public to the private, I guess in many ways right if you have your kitchen, no one's going to see the kitchen, but it still does reinforce your own sense of elitism or superiority right with your buying power, really, your buying power combined with you know at least a modicum of cultural understanding of mm-hmm. what it means to be elite now
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about each of the four occupations that you spent uh, a period of, I think, years studying mm-hmm. and, in some cases, working in. You had a few internships that lasted a few months in each of these uh, mm-hmm. occupations. Let's start with cocktail bartenders and the idea that they hate being called mixologists. This was mm-hmm. something I learned in your book. They really hate it. They think it's, uh, it's too self-conscious, and it's not what they think of themselves as doing.
1: Right. They love the label, bartender they they recognize that the word mixology exists and they they you know they're they're big historians these folks so they they love the the history of the term it does exist they see that as the the real scientific part of what they do it's almost like the theory behind what they do the the guiding principle but they think that by identifying as mixologist would be Kind of uh, making it a little bit too fancy. It would be trying too hard, right? Mm-hmm. It would it would be doing what we just discussed about showing off, right? They are just bartenders. They tend the bar, right? And they they count the money and they make change and they wipe up a spill and they get you water and they you know, ask you how your day is and they think that this is what being a bartender is much more about than about the making of the drinks. At the same time, they fully recognize that they would not get the attention they get they would not get the 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 benefits that come from being a a bartender in an elite craft cocktail bar and the status and the status that that comes along with it and the opportunities they would get to work outside the bar if they did not practice mixology and it's probably for that reason that a lot of them do identify as they put mixologists on their business card or as part of their you know uh, uh, folder that they hand out to to potential clients when they do consultancy work because mm-hmm. they know that that term has great value in in the market right. If you're going to become oh well, why am I going to hire this guy to to do my beverage program if I own a hotel? Well, he's a mixologist. It says it on his business card, right? right. But when it comes to what do you do right? Who are you? What is your occupation? They all, they, they love it. and they, they, they say, I'm a bartender, just like the guy at the Dominican bar down the street, no more, no less.
0: You open your discussion of bartending with a scene that you set of a, a kind of conference you attended where there was this really interesting conversation going on about what actually gets to be called gin, right? <laughs> because obviously... Part of this upskilling and upscaling of these occupations now involves like a very specialized knowledge about what they do. And in this case, you know, somebody was saying, well, look, it's a whole new spirit we're creating, right? I think it can be called gin for X, Y, and Z reasons. And then somebody (laughs) in the audience, you know, got up and was more of a traditionalist and said, well, hang on a minute, right? If you're changing it that much, you don't get to call it gin. It's a great spirit. But it's no longer gin.
1: Right. I mean, all of these jobs, I really wanted to show really the moral economy that goes on within these communities. They're always debating and arguing over just what the exact boundaries of what they do is going to look like. They're they're the authorities who are able to do that. And that's exactly what I'm trying to show in in this episode. And and it happens all the time within the cocktail world, right? Mm -hmm. Because they all want to promote and they all – more or less agree on what is the right thing to be doing. The right thing to be doing is to promote spirits like gin and to use them in the right way. Uh, They all agree on that. But if you go beneath the surface a little bit, you get to these sorts of arguments, right? When is it a gin and when is it not a gin? So for hundreds of years, gin was the London Dry style for the most Mm -hmm. part. That That dominated the market, which is very juniper heavy. So if you ever raided your parents' liquor cabinet and tasted that and it tasted like a pine tree, that was it, right? As the craft spirits industry has expanded, as cocktail bartending has expanded, and as bartenders have started to want to find different flavor profiles for gin besides just the, the, the London Dry style, we have all these different flavors that have come up. So what happens when gin loses its juniper flavor? Is it still gin, right? And that's what that debate was was all about and it was impassioned it didn't get disrespectful but they were made very forceful arguments like no juniper then it's gin he's like yeah well in the spirits guide it's called a gin he's like that's because you put it on your bottle you call it a gin (laughs) i had to put that on there because you call it a gin on the bottle so these debates are endless and whether it's uh gin uh then or whether it's bourbon now or whether it's some mixing technique now or at the time molecular mixology was becoming very big so is it a cocktail if it's deconstructed into gummies and mists and cotton candy type of uh, textures the the debate is always continuing right just they're always arguing and discussing like is this what we're doing now that's that's every group really but you really see it with these folks
0: yeah and this is related to something else that comes up in the book quite a bit which is uh the tension between respecting and in some cases replicating the way things were done in the past versus innovating and how to do things uh, in a way that's new, it seems like Cocktail bartending is one of those four occupations that most sort of exemplifies this tension. So, for instance, uh, in these bars that you describe, and especially the Mm -hmm. speakeasies of New York that you studied, in some of these places, they even replicated, like, the clothing and the uh, way that some of the ice gets chipped for these drinks, the the same way that they were done in, like, the golden era of – Mixology. I didn't know until I read your book that that era was between 1870 and 1920 until Prohibition ended it, and then it sort of had like a recovery period of in the last few decades, mm-hmm. right? But there's sort of the tension between like respecting that, replicating it because some customers want to come in and do things that way, versus doing things in a way that's innovative or that just combines like the more casual vibe of your actual neighborhood Brooklyn bar now where you can still have these delicious cocktails and even made in a way that's similar to the way they were made in the past, but the bartenders are wearing jeans instead of, like, these kind of hokey, like, old, you know, pants and suspenders or whatever.
1: Right. I mean, it's really part of this idea of this moral economy. They were really trying to recreate an environment that people should be drinking in, right? That was really their motivator in – putting on the suspenders and the vests and having the the jazz music playing and socially engineering how people sit and not having standing and if it gets too loud the bartender literally is is told to go shh and to like shush people because it's too loud in there and we're supposed to be very genteel when you drink right that was in milk and honey that was New uh, and these were these were extremes but if you were to get a cocktail in new york at one point or in in most in a lot of cities that that this is what you had to do right and this is where you had to go and they they wanted to bring back that time of well whether this time existed is is kind of irrelevant they think it existed that that to have a cocktail was to uh, live a life of privileged leisure of some sort to to be genteel right it was it was it was a form of of gentility and it went in some cases it went to extremes and some people have kept going in that direction and and gone to extremes. Some make cocktails the way they were first made, there's one bar that makes them without ice. Because at one point, unless you lived in the northeast, you simply did not have ice because it didn't freeze there and there was no refrigeration. So you had warm cocktails. So this guy serves warm cocktails and it it becomes this selective retrieval. It's like okay, you now you're just you're picking and choosing from the past which may or may not have been actually how people actually behaved in these spaces for the present to create this interesting aesthetic of of mm-hmm. you know, of this revived culture. So they started out by saying we had to do it that way. We had to be all like shushing people and limiting how many people can come in and have the bartenders dress professionally. Because we had to train New York City, right? We had to train people. We had to train them in terms of their palates, right, to get them used to having bitter flavors and things like that. And we had to train them in terms of their consumption behavior, right? This is not a place where you put on the jukebox and get all rowdy and stuff like that. Sorry. That's not how we consume anymore, right? This is the, the real way you should be doing it if you want to have this type of experience. But now they're like, okay, we did it. To them, it's a success. That's why you can wear jeans and you know uh, a checked shirt at, at a bar and have the Rolling Stones playing instead of Bessie Smith right. because we, we, we succeeded. So now, congratulations, New York. You, you get your neighborhood bar that also serves uh, really excellent cocktails but where you could be a little loud and bring your friends and have a little party or something like that.
0: That reminds me of a scene in Cable Guy, the movie. Where um so they're medieval at, times, scene. yeah, they're in medieval <laughs> times, and um there's no knife and fork, and Matthew Broderick calls the waitress over and says, hey uh, can can I get a knife and fork?" and she says, "There are no knives and forks in media- medieval times right. because there were no knives and forks, you know in medial- medieval From times medieval times, X- yeah, right. something like that, right. and I'll he says, "Oh, Pepsi. but they have diet Pepsi right. in medieval times <laughs> right <laughs> it's right. A, a very funny scene, that's what it reminded me of, yeah. Let's turn to craft distilleries. This was interesting to me because I didn't know that there were so few of them in the U.S. as recently as 2001, when there were only 24 craft distilleries in the country. Apparently, distilling was just all done by multinationals at the time.
1: Yeah, and it it still is in in many cases. But there there were far more of these of these distilleries. It was something that, like cocktail culture, something that died with prohibition. There would have been thousands of what we can call, they weren't necessarily distilleries, but they were spirits-producing operations, mostly farm distilleries. Every farm would have had a still if they made a certain, if they grew a certain crop that could be distilled easily. It was profitable. It was something that that was beneficial for them. It subsidized their farming operation. Prohibition wiped all that out. And when it returned, it was really only the big companies that were able to get started again. It was the Depression when Prohibition got lifted in 1933. There was not a lot of investment capital. There weren't a lot of people who could buy, you know, spirits, really, or expensive spirits or anything. It was tough to start a business. World War II hits, and that limits spirits production. And a lot of distilleries that did manage to get up and going had to readjust their efforts, you know, to, to help the war effort.
0: I was surprised to learn how heavily regulated it was also until the turn of the century. And that um, was
1: the big deal because who wrote the liquor laws uh, after Prohibition ended? It, it got left to the, the federal government, the 21st Amendment, leaves it to the states. And basically it was the big liquor companies, beer and spirits, that set the, the rules for who could make what, how much it had to be to get a license, and they, they just created the environment. So it was uh, the last state to alter its home brewing laws because you couldn't brew at home because big companies don't want you doing that was like in 1978 or 9 or something like that distilling is still illegal home distilling in i think every state actually i don't think it's been lifted at all but doing that really jump-started the craft beer movement and that's why that starts out really in the 80s uh in some states uh around then 80s and then the 90s uh, and then distilling doesn't really take off until the 90s a little bit, but really it's in it's in the 2000s when we mm-hmm. start to get people who are enterprising folks, mostly in rural areas, not too far from cities. So it would have been at the time like outside Portland, outside of San Francisco, outside of, of New York City, but close enough to these markets where people are starting to really get interested in the non-mainstream products like and local products local products uh, made with local ingredients made in a certain way right the whole handcrafted sourced from local farms sourced from local like farms there's a relationship there you can go visit them if you really want to to know about the origins of what you're consuming and that really starts to take off in in the 2000s and then they start to really lobby to change a lot of these laws to make it much more beneficial for small producers to to operate and to, to be a business.
0: Yeah, I like this uh, because there's a good economics lesson here, and then I guess there's also a good sociological lesson here. Mm-hmm. Um, the economics lesson would seem to be that by easing these anti-competitive restrictions, you end up unleashing in many ways the creativity mm-hmm. and the productivity of, of these smaller producers, right? And that's useful. Um, and it shows sure. how anti competitive uh, rules can stifle the supply side, essentially, right? Absolutely.
1: And, and the big companies have, have benefited from this.
0: They've. they so they can buy the smaller companies. They bought the smaller companies,
1: <laughs> right? They bought the smaller companies. I mean, it's funny. The, the main distillery that I studied is a place called Tuttletown Spirits in upstate New York, not far from New Paltz. By the end of my projects, uh, they their main brand. The Hudson Whiskey line was bought by William Grant & Sons, a large multinational spirits company. I think it's like the fourth or fifth largest in the world or something like that. They essentially became contract workers. So they just made the product for this company, and then they handled the distribution and promotion and all the rest of it. And as recently as a few months ago, William Grant & Sons bought the whole distillery from the owners. So now they own the whole thing. And the two folks who owned it since 2003, I think, when they first started the company... Them, they're done. They they can yeah. retire now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I so. guess uh,
0: I guess the other lesson from this too, from this chapter, was something a little bit closer to, to sociology, which is that these industries have become a little more multifaceted, mm-hmm. in the sense that before this would have been strictly a wholesale operation, but now these craft distilleries are places that buyers can visit. They can actually witness the whole supply chain mm-hmm. in action. Right. Uh, they have to know how to partner with bars uh, right. in New York City, and they have to know how to market themselves, how to advertise themselves. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's become this this much more comprehensive suite of mm-hmm. uh, activities than just making a new spirit.
1: Yeah, exactly. They – that's when they start to move into cities and opening up in cities, and that was a big part of the legislative reforms that they tried to to push through the state to have tasting rooms and so on. It's kind of a weird idea like to go on a tour of a factory and to watch stuff get made that's that's kind of strange and much like it was strange to live in a in a loft space at one point right in the fifties and sixties, and now Soho is the wealthiest you know uh, area code and the, the zip code in the country or something. <laughs> So they embraced the idea that people do want to see the process that goes behind what makes the products that they buy and that they consume. And so they could have a tasting room where people can go and see the actual product. They can see the stills. They can see the fermentation tanks. They can ask questions about it. And then they can taste different versions of the product that the they just saw basically get made. So – uh, many have opened up bars, so they, they really turned into more like retail on their premises. Type of, right? On their premises, yeah, on their on their premises, or, or like right, yeah, right next door, or, uh, depending on you know where they where they where they're located, and that's become a very very important aspect of what it means to be a distiller now. You don't just make things; you become really you become an educator. You become a seller. You don't just sell to liquor stores, right? You sell directly to your consumer.
0: And this seems to tie together also to your overarching themes of culture as something to be performed Mm -hmm. and to your theme of cultural omnivorousness, which is to say that uh, if you go to one of these distilleries and you have a drink, a sample of what they produce in their bar, and you witness the whole supply chain in action, Mm -hmm. it's essentially something you can boast about. You can say, I found this great new rye or this great new whiskey And I watched it get made, and I tasted it there, and it goes perfectly with uh, this, you know, this mixer that I have. And then you can talk about it at a Mm -hmm. party where you serve it, right? It's this new way of consuming things, and it's also something that's hard to replicate for someone else, right? Once you've bragged about having done that, somebody else can't say... Uh, oh, well, I had the exact same experience because it would it's too specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the chances that somebody else, one of your other friends sure. that you're bragging about this to, also went to the same distillery, which is maybe a smaller distillery, uh, right. and also did the same tasting and also has paired it with the same mixers or whatever? It's just another way in which these jobs have become more specialized yeah
1: it blends super well into a lot of these different trends that we see i mean there's this you're mentioning it's really another form of cultural capital that we're seeing but it's a very very unique one it's one that fits very well within the overall experience economy that that experiences are what really kind of sell places and businesses and, and and products at the same time as it's also this very highly reflexive and also just individualized form of consumption. You're absolutely right. Like nobody can have, no one can replicate that. This it's it's yours. It's something that you have, you can tell it, you can brag about it if you want, but you can you can carry it with you and use it, right? However you however you wish, yeah.
0: Yeah, when I said brag about it, I was just being a little bit facetious, right? I mean, I'm sure I there's some bragging going on, and know. it certainly happens. <laughs> but I mean, most most people aren't so self-conscious or obnoxious about it. But we all we all have like uh, I guess our status markers or our our signals, right? Our yeah. virtue signals or whatever, yeah. and um, and also just the things that we like to claim as our own. Like this is a human thing. I don't mean to to be too dismissive about it. No, um, no, 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 no. And so no, no. Uh, this is to just be. part of. Yeah, yeah, this is just part of a new way of consuming in a new way as you said. I like mm-hmm. this way of describing it, of building cultural capital. Right. Uh, let's talk about your observations in a uh, barbershop uh, here in New York, Freeman Sporting Freeman's, Club right. on so, the Lower Side. Cutting hair also is something that has become more specialized. You talked though about how in the barbershop itself, most of the banter is between the barbers. It's not this grand Mm -hmm. mix, as we imagine it used to happen in, you know, the neighborhood barbershops of the past. where still still happens. And and still happens in in neighborhood barbershops. But this specific kind of upskilled, very expensive way of cutting hair, Mm -hmm. right, involves the barbers all bantering with each other. But very rarely did the actual clients get involved. And the clients themselves seem to only have a relationship with their specific barber and with nobody else there. Yeah,
1: it was fascinating. I expected... I guess just my idea of what they were trying to do. I knew they were trying to recreate the classic male preserve, right? That's just the classic American barbershop, which I never experienced growing up, but you know, had all these ideas in my head of what it meant. And I read like online some Yelp reviews or something, and they kind of talked about the talking and stuff like that. I am like, oh, that's great. That's going. This is going to be fun. I am going to enjoy this, you know. And (laughs) I get there, and it really is like this performance that was going on. It was all these barbers who were they're doing it like they're doing the banter they're talking shit to each other they're teasing each other they're bragging they're telling stories they're posing funny hypothetical questions like you know these are like absurd questions like would you rather do this or this you know like that kind of thing just to like spark debate spark conversation to keep it lively to keep it interesting and the clients are just sitting there and there there is no interaction between them. There's nothing it goes, you know, it's not a community oriented place. It's not a place where people know each other from all over and where this is kind of where we go. This is our public gathering place where we all see each other. It was a performance for people who come from all over the city to to go and get their hair cut who know the visual cues that they're looking for when they're looking for a traditional classic barbershop experience that's also going to give them the style and the look that they they need to have or that they want to have uh, in their everyday lives and that really is what it boiled down to and and there would be interactions between the barber and a client right just the if it's a regular or something like that and even cases where a client tried to chime in to the the, the group banter that was going on with the barbers it, it wouldn't last very long they would just kind not necessarily get ignored but just made kind of clear like you're not really part of this kind of thing. It was a, it was a really really fascinating way that they were uh really performing this working class idea of what masculine space is all about, sure. you know, for people who were who wanted it, you know, they wanted to, con, to to at least consume it and be a part of it um as an observer. Um whether they wanted to actually participate, I, I really don't know, but that's what they got.
0: This is where I want to go back to something we hit on a little bit earlier uh, and also sort of explain why I'm a little bit ambivalent about how to think about this workspace, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it requires a little bit of a wind-up. A constant theme on this podcast uh, and something we've discussed with a lot of other our other guests is that sort of outdated ideas of what constitutes, like, masculinity mm-hmm. can have some really negative effects in a modern economy, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, uh, it makes men... More hesitant to embrace uh, jobs that involve like caregiving, mm-hmm. right? Sure. They don't train for those jobs. Mm-hmm. They don't graduate from higher education at nearly as high a rate uh, as women do. It also makes them a little bit more hesitant to like embrace their role at home, right? Mm-hmm. And all of the other dimensions that come sure. with it, the yeah. psychological and sociological yeah. dimensions that come with it. Yeah. And so, one of the things that we've discussed is how you know, all of this is is just a construct that we should do whatever we can to get past because, for instance, I write blog posts all day. There shouldn't be anything considered manly about that, right? Like, manly or not manly shouldn't really be part of the discussion there, right? And we should try to apply that to the rest of the workplace and that to the extent uh, that men want outlets for their masculinity, which is perfectly fine, we should find a healthier way to accommodate that, right? Essentially, what you're describing in this barbershop is a place where that expression of masculinity has arisen in yet another workplace, right? So in one sense, you might make the argument that, well, that's fine. It's healthy, right? It reconnects masculinity with work. On the other hand, this seems problematic to me because that is a workplace. Mm -hmm. You don't want workplaces – that don't also accommodate women working there in the same way that they accommodate men. And it sounds like this barbershop is, is a really problematic place for women to work in, and you even you even described the one-woman barber who worked mm. in the place and how she sometimes chimes into the banter, but for the most part, when it gets really crude, she stays out of it. She stays out of it, yeah. right. there was all these, There were all these thoughts going through my head as I read more about this workspace. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean... There were very very few women who who were there who had any opportunity to say anything. But yeah, the few cases that I saw, they weren't included. Right, there wasn't that inclusion, and I don't think a lot of that. I don't think that was intentional or anything like that. They 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 like her, right? They they think she's cool and they think she's a good barber and everything. I think there's two different levels to it. I think on the one hand, there's the work itself, right? So there's the people who choose to become not just barbers but barbers at this specific place where masculinity is very overt and very explicit its whole design is to uh, be a safe space for men to go to be men and to be around other men while achieving a very very high-end style and to get a very it is explicitly advertised that's what they do meanwhile most of the work they do is is remarkably feminine, demonstrating empathy, right? Demonstrating caring in many ways. A lot of that gets hidden, though, by the overt masculinity of the banter, which really kind of supersedes everything. Mm-hmm. So the men who are going in there to get their haircut don't have to really think too much about the fact that they're having this forty-five minute, you know, sixty-dollar haircut done to them, where this man is basically step by step explaining to them here's what you have to do to your body to yourself i'm going to do it first and then i'm going to show you how you how you can achieve this uh as well um you have that going on but they don't have to think about it because you have all the stuff about movies and music and sports that that's kind of going on around them right within this this very homosocial and, and masculine coded space but then you have the clients themselves who are trying to perform something. It goes back to this performance, right? Masculinity is a performance. It's something that we try to do every day, every hour of the day. We're trying to, with our hair, with our clothes, with how we walk, and, of course, with our our jobs, with our employment, trying to achieve something. And these workers provide guidance in an era where I think guidance for what it means to be a real man or a good man or a proper man are as unstable as what we talked about before with the economy there isn't that clear path like go to college go 40 years or something like that there isn't that path that tells you here's what you wear to 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 go to work here's how you should do your hair it used to be you wear a suit obviously you wear the the gray flannel suit and it's conformity and don't try to do anything too too uh wild right Mm -hmm. Now that's kind of gone, right? Now some workplaces you can wear a T-shirt, some places you can wear cargo shorts, some places are business casual. Uh, what what are you supposed to do? And you have to stand out in some kind of way. You have to be unique in some kind of way. You have to achieve something. But what that actually is 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 very ambiguous. So this becomes a place of of refuge in in many respects, right? It becomes this place of refuge for just being around other guys right at the same time as it's a refuge for getting that guidance that you need to put on this performance that you feel you're compelled to do right
0: that gives i think a a good context to what actually happens when you walk in the door there right Right. that there are all these kinds of implicit uh behaviors taking place that you may not you may not absorb if you just go into there the first time right um This gives sort of the other side of it, too. In other words, the work side of it, rather than just what it is to go there and get a haircut and leave. Okay. Let's go to the final occupation, butchers. Uh, A new way of doing, you know, uh, a butcher shop, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So take the whole animal, and then, you know, start to finish, you get to see the whole thing as it's being cut, and then you decide which cut of meat you want.
1: Yep. Just like the, in many ways, like the craft distillery, you can watch the whole process if you want, you can point on the animal like i want it right i want something off of there can you explain to me why getting the cut off of that part of the animal is different from getting it off of the other part of the animal that you have hanging over there and that's the that's the intention behind these businesses is to show show the whole process make it very transparent reconnect the consumer with the product in this case with their their food with their meat uh, very similar to something like a green market, you know, like in, in New York City and in cities around the country, of a farmer explaining where this product comes from. You meet the maker, you know. They usually try to get local animals uh, that are ethical, that were raised ethically, that were slaughtered ethically, and that were just treated well and brought down and then butchered up. The yeah, best...
0: There was the phrase, the pillars of righteousness. The pil- I was just going to say, <laughs> the,
1: the pillars of righteousness is that. Every animal deserves or should have a, a, a good life, a respectable death, a good butcher, and a good chef, right, to, to make. And that's the cycle. Those are the pillars of righteousness. <laughs> yeah.
0: There was a way of uh, explaining these jobs you use uh, as a mix of art and science, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what's interesting about this is that uh, these jobs essentially used to be mostly just the science, right, that it's the artistic side that's been largely added to it and cultivated. And for butchery, uh, this uh, especially applies because you think of butchering an animal as like this very like rough thing to do. Like you take a you know, take a hatchet and you just start carving the thing right. up. Not right. at all. Actually, it's become a very precise business, but it's also one that involves interacting with customers quite a bit, knowing their food tastes, mm-hmm. knowing what meat goes with what other food, right? Mm-hmm. And also sometimes understanding what the customer wants more than the customer himself or herself actually knows and you have to tease it out of them. You actually watch one or two people get fired because they weren't good enough right. at that part of the job. Right.
1: This goes back to a few things we've talked about. This This goes back to the performance aspect of it, of these jobs and how they really, these jobs are at the nexus of, the technical aspect, the technical skills that we normally think—what do you think about when you think of a, a butcher? They cut meat. That's you know, first thing anybody would really say. What about a barber? oh Well, they cut hair. Well, it's it's a lot more than that. You have to perform the, the technical aspect, sure, and also attach to that technical aspect the sense that you're doing something that is a craft and that is a part of uh, being a craftsman and craftsmanship, as well as have this understanding of why this. Uh, Practice and why these products and services are different and unique and special and even better than what you're getting at the supermarket or at the corner store or something like that. And finally, being able to socially communicate that knowledge to the people who you're serving. You have to have all three, and you have to do them at once, and you have to do it with ease, right? You have to do it with confidence and not be a jerk about it or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Nothing can really – they should be imbalanced. Nothing should really outshine anything else, so – for the butchers, that's exactly what they've been encouraged to do. So, yeah, the shop that I that I studied had two butchers who were from Mexico right, specifically, where whole animal butchery is more popular than it is in the U.S. in a public sense. Obviously, we have whole animal butchery in the U.S., but usually it's done behind closed doors in a large meatpacking facility that's more or less like a factory in the Midwest. And, and usually it is Latin American immigrants who who are doing it, Mexicans who are doing it. But this is in a public sense, right? So when the owner of this shop wanted to do the whole animal butchery style, the culture was there. The idea, obviously, foodie culture was around. So the, the, the idea that we should have local meat that is sustainable and ethical and all the rest of it was there. But the skills to enact that knowledge were lacking because it hadn't been done in a, in a long time. So he hired these two folks who excellent butchers and they can – work very efficiently and very quickly and just being Mexican uh, Mexican butchers tend to what they call seam out cuts uh, very uh, precisely and in very very uh, many pieces I guess is a way but they can make many cuts that's like kind of the Mexican cuisine uh, which is very beneficial if you're a whole animal butcher shop because you've got to sell the whole thing and it's a lot more lucrative to sell individual pieces when they're broken down very small than it is to sell very large pieces. It's like a car it's much it's better to strip a car for its parts and you get more value out of it than if you sell it for sale. so he got these butchers and they were they were great they could stand there all day cutting down breaking down animals they would love nothing more. did they necessarily have an interest in why those animals were superior to the animals that get shipped in from the Midwest or that came in a in a box or something like that? did they care that it was done by that they were raised by a local farmer who was within a few hundred miles of the city or that they were slaughtered ethically, or that the cut off the shoulder has a certain flavor profile that's similar to a very popular cut that's out of the rib section that you can communicate to the customer who comes in and explain hey well actually you may like this type of cut but you, you might like this one a lot of, a lot better so you maybe have filet mignon all the time but let me tell you about a cut over here on this side of the animal that's actually half the price and double the flavor and you can make it in the exact same way and you can serve it to your family in this way and you can cut it th- they, they didn't care about that like at all. They, they were just, I cut meat. That's what butchers do. Right? That was their understanding of, of the job. Whereas these shops want someone who's a lot more multifaceted, somebody who can explain exactly why this cut of meat tastes different from what you're going to get at the supermarket or what is the difference between grass-fed and grain-fed or grass-fed, grain-fed, and grain-fed grass-fed grain finished right these are all these very subtle distinctions or why i'm cutting it this way and not that way why i'm leaving some fat on it but Mm. taking the fat off of it on this end of it uh why this is a lot more there's going to be a lot more tender in this section of the cut but a lot a little bit chewier in this side of the cut and the other side of the cut is going to have a lot more iron content all those different like specialized knowledges that go into all of these jobs really but we're just talking about the butchers these folks didn't didn't really they didn't, they didn't think it was part of their job. They could do it. They they were very they're professionals. They 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 were cooks. They had a very good Mexican cuisine background. And during the course of my my research, yeah, both were eventually were were fired, were let go.
0: One was rehired, though, we should say. One was Happy rehired.
1: Ending. One was right. rehired and now he he got well, at the time he got rehired and was second in command to someone he had trained who had moved up while he was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that person left. And now he's he is the head butcher, actually. Uh, but he came back by embracing this idea that... That there was a you services know what, component to it as you well. You know what? Yeah. I, I've got to be more proactive with this. He, he liked mm-hmm. the job. It, it pays more than uh, food industry jobs, retail food industry jobs in the city that he could get. And he knows he has the skill. He had an interest in it. And he decided he was going to make more of an effort And he he, he relayed that to the owner, and the owner accepted it, and and it's worked out for him. So Uh,
0: Let's uh, close with two final questions. The the first question is this, and it goes once again to this issue of uh, performance. Uh, You asked this question uh, in the concluding chapter of your book. Why are there no, quote-unquote, cool plumbers, electricians, or maintenance workers? Perhaps because they usually do their jobs in confined private settings, A central aspect of the new elite manual labor jobs is that they are performed publicly in front of a knowing audience. And for them, the validation for a skilled performance is integral to achieving status through work. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's true. I think these reparative crafts, these these repair trades essentially like mechanics and plumbers and electricians, they don't always do repairs. But for the most part, that's that's what they, they get called in to do. They're doing it in homes. They're doing it in very you know specific spaces that are that are considered dirty in, in many many regards. Or doing them is considered to be dirty, and they're not able to perform them publicly in front of an audience. They 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 have great knowledge. Obviously, they explain things yeah. you know in very minute detail. If you if you ever talk to them or, and ask them about it, they also don't necessarily form occupational communities that have a kind of a spatial dimension to them. Plumbers work alone. You know, they they just work in a house and then they go to the next house. You know, butchers work together, right? People in barbershops all work side by side. People in, in bars all work side by side. They could, they observe each other. They create what I refer to in the book is a community of practice where they almost create this critical mass of of craft and creativity that that is infectious and that, Rubs off on people and it turns it into a, a real like dynamic learning environment that's going on that consumers feel and they, they they really they experience. That's what it is. That's like the real point. They're designed to to do that. Whereas I think there are a lot of manual labor jobs that are done in isolation and that are not done not just publicly but are not done uh, with that uh, learning dynamic uh, going on. I guess it's an ongoing question. Like what what jobs can fall under this category of uh, new elite manual labor and become something that gets vaunted and highly uh, valued and that you know, yeah. Yeah. The,
0: I, I don't think it's a total coincidence that the craft jobs you describe at some stage in the process have a product that makes for a great Instagram post, right? (laughs) In other words, this sort of coincided with the rise of social media, with the ability to share something that's specialized, customized, bespoke with your friends. And I think that maybe also uh, accelerated the trend Mm -hmm. and the accumulation of status of people who work in those fields. Absolutely.
1: And as much as we talk about that these are – historic jobs and old jobs and they're being revived and so on they've embraced the new you know left right and center you know the social media instagram self-promotion mm-hmm. all the different attributes of what it means to be a good worker in, in today's economy to really kind of take the reins of your own career and see yourself as this individual entrepreneur who's promoting your brand so to say they're excellent at it and the, well the, the really successful ones are really excellent at it
0: one final question and this uh, I'm coming at this like from an economics standpoint too. Your book was not one about like the macroeconomic impact of these jobs. It was more an attempt to understand how these workers go about doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. But here's uh, what sort of came to mind as I was reading it: a lot of economists are trying to work out like what happens as more and more jobs get automated. That some are, are sort of worried probably prematurely about, like, the automation of every single job, right? And what do we do then, okay? But uh, actually, uh, another simpler worry is just what happens when the production of material goods is mostly automated away, right? How do the remaining jobs still demonstrate productivity growth? How do they still demonstrate increasing value to people, right? right? Both subjectively, but also in how much people are willing to pay for it, right? Which yeah. is very measurable. And I read your book as sort of an early indication of how an economy can look when a lot of the production of material things uh, has been automated. And now you're still working with material things, right? Sure. But the, sure. Part, the part that involves, you know, manipulating it has been sort of mostly left to machines. And it's not just that... You have, like, you know, the specialization in providing services and the greater knowledge that you need because people like it, because it gives both the worker and the consumer more cultural capital. Right. There are also ancillary benefits. So if you're a cocktail bartender, you can also now work as a brand consultant, right? If you work in a specialized butcher shop, you can now be a consultant for restaurants. You can write a book about it. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, there, are all ways, there are all these different ways of sort of uh, parlaying your new knowledge into something else. And it seems like that is Right now, something that is still limited to like the, the what we just described earlier, the educated elite, but it could also be, in the future, something that's democratized as more and more of the traditional, certainly the routinized jobs uh, get automated away.
1: Right, and that's a really open question, I guess, for, for what direction that the labor market goes in, that the economy goes in, with the exception of the distillers. These are all part of, I guess, what economists call the, the non-tradable sector, right? So... You can't export or automate, not yet. At least hair cutting. The guy in China can't cut my hair. That's just not how it works. Yeah. I have to do it here. If I want to get a drink with my friends, I got to do it here. Meat, you can you can <laughs> somewhat do that, but whatever. It's a bit with laws about health and hygiene and the the FDA and all this kind of stuff. It's hard to do. Distilling obviously is mostly done, you know, multinationally and you know very automated and very, as automated as it can be. But what draws people to it and what gives it at least for the time being some some staying powers, some lasting powers that, that people want the craft, right? People want something about this something about these handmade products where you know the worker and you know the process that people interpret as being something that's authentic and better than the Jim Beam that got made, you know, by more or less like a robot would make it, right? Something like that. Not to make fun of Jim Beam. I don't know if they actually do that, but you know what I'm saying. So it's it's interesting to see what kind of direction that similar types of jobs may go down will they try to kind of push back against automation by becoming for the time being highly niche very specific segmented uh, sectors of this larger industry uh, by connecting with the local by connecting with the process and by connecting with the materials that uh, that go into making them Um, or will they simply become automated away I mean it's it's a great question
0: Richard Osejo, the book is Masters of Craft, Old Jobs in the New Urban Economy. It's on Amazon. I got my copy at Barnes & Noble, but uh, it's Ooh. in everywhere that you normally look for books. Uh, thanks for being cool. on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And that is the end of my chat with Richard Osejo. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code +1 because we are based in the United States for our listeners overseas. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. Leave us a review, rate the show on iTunes. We really appreciate this because others do find out about us from iTunes. Finally, at ft.com forward slash alphachat, you can find show notes to this and all other previous episodes of alpha Chat. Amy Keen, producer and editor of this podcast, continues to demonstrate her ever-expanding mastery of the podcasting craft. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks for our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.